child like Ron Howard to a even tinier child like uh, John Favreau to uh, an alcoholic uh, bad boy like Nick Cassavetes some there's got to be some fold in space some something Einstein must have freakishly uh, contorted in our in our planet tube to uh, have a genius like Elaine May put out something like this movie. I don't know if I've been watching Elaine May's work properly. So after watching this, I, I feel... Like, I, maybe there's a lot I've been missing in the other two. It's, it's a movie that's so goddamn good that it really just cannot help but make you wish that Elaine May had directed more than four movies. A million feet of film for this movie. Yeah. A two-hour two, two movie is a le- eleven thousand feet. She shot a million feet of film. Uh, more than they shot for *Gone with the Wind*. About the same amount that Stanley Kubrick shot for *The Shining*. And think about how much we pat Stanley Kubrick on the back for everything about *The Shining*. We built an entire documentary around fucking falling into every rabbit hole and like putting our head up his ass. Mm. Elaine May shoots as much, gets thrown in fucking Nothing. director jail. Nothing. Yeah, I had to watch this movie on fucking like Tubi, oh, really? which is some free app that I had to have fucking the same Coca Cola oh. ad eight times during. It's like, really? Elaine May's getting the fucking Tubi treatment? Oh, I watched it on the uh, Criterion channel. I should have, I realized once again, put in my own Blu-ray that I bought. But no, instead I watched it on my phone. Did did it once again. Ah, you fucking jackass. All right, I couldn't figure out how to cast it to my TV from my phone, all right? Um, okay, so... Where to start? Where to begin? Where to start? I guess we can go about it chronologically, but I think it's just going to be easier to talk about sort of forms of expression that we see repeated throughout or not repeated at all um so the we are faced with john cassavetes who looks um like complete shit about as bad as he's ever looked and he often looks bad on film oh yeah have you seen love streams (laughs) you uh you know the the depths to which his uh visage goes 
Um, Peter Falk looking just about as sweaty and befuddled as usual. And the setup is basically uh, John Cassavetes, a.k.a. Nicky, is on the run. Yeah, he is hiding out in a squalid Philadelphia hotel because he believes, uh, because of his involvement in a recent, uh, I think it's a recent robbery, he is uh, he has been fingered to get assassinated. We get these details through conversation between um, Falk and Cassavetes. There's not really much in the way of exposition. We kind of have to make what we can of the newspaper that he's reading. And even the details we get from their conversation aren't especially clear. Not she's not giving us a lot to work with from a uh, like an explanation standpoint. She's really kind of making us right. do the work, um, piece things together from these guys who are, um, I don't know, speaking in somewhat vague terms occasionally about the the nature of their work and the nature of their relationship. Um, right. Did you think this movie took place in New York the first time you watched it? I didn't realize until now you saying Philadelphia that that was the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I just, if a movie is set in a city and they don't explicitly state it, I tend to just default to New York. But yeah, and a, yeah. Fi- a Philly movie and actually shot there as well. You can actually tell it's a Philly movie because the bars still look like that. Mm-hmm. Like just like kind of rectangular rooms with weird beer and plywood bars. I, it's there's uh, there's not much in the way of like Philadelphia landmarks. There's one like mm. I think it's a train station that's got this weird kind of arch thing. It almost looks like a Gothic cathedral um, that I, I that I recognize. But other than that, I like that they kind of I like that it could be a pretty anonymous city. Um, yeah, it's just this kind of vague urban hellscape there's nothing especially yeah. distinctive about it it's just it, <laughs> to these guys could be anybody they could be any just kind of low-level mobster i th- thought that this movie made a really interesting companion with the irishman in that sense a movie that's uh, yeah a, actually <laughs> yeah uh funny just kind of seeing philadelphia represented in two extremely different ways well, I think they're both movies that uh, really look to kind of deconstruct the kind of glamour and, um, I don't know, excitement of of lives of crime on cinema. There's nothing at all glamorous about Mikey and Nikki's lives. They're two just kind of regular schmoes. You know, sooner or later, Mikey's going to end up fucking up and getting killed probably, too. Um, mm. They don't they're not shown to be especially like wealthy or anything like that. And even like the the, the real wheelers and dealers that we meet don't seem all that like impressive uh there's no, not it's kind they're of, not don vito you know and i yeah. met don vito from viva la bam they're from not uh, viva la bam yeah, yeah. yeah and philadelphia is kind of like a city without a punctuation mark there's nothing really defining it and there's not even enough movies to say that it's like i mean besides like rocky which we erected a fucking statue mm-hmm. on the art museum of art steps to commemorate like I, I i i feel especially when this was made philadelphia was just kind of like the secondary city mm-hmm. which is yeah. apt for a movie like this i mean there's certainly history you know decoration of independence and all of that but i think it says a lot about philadelphia that what if you ask most philadelphians what they consider to be the city's defining characteristics they would say grit if you asked any Bostonian what they consider to be the city's defining characteristic, what do you think they would say? Grit, probably. If you asked a fucking New Yorker what they think their city's defining characteristic is, again, they would probably say grit. So basically, mm-hmm. Philadelphia's defining quality, insofar as it has one, is one that literally every city on the planet, at least every city yeah. in northeast, uh, the northeast United States, would, would use to define themselves. 
But I would say Philadelphia, if you are there and if you experience it, there's something um, undeniably significant about being there that you don't find in other places, which I think this movie shares. And a, a large part of my experience of watching this is I don't know who these people are and nothing they do really puts me in a more comfortable place in saying that they are this type of person. No one occupies the kind of gangster role. Nick John Cassavetes doesn't even occupy being on the run role very well. Like mm -hmm. I can't say that he's the guy on the run in this whole movie. And like I can't say Philadelphia is defined by the cheesesteak. I can't say that this movie's defined by any genre or um or style of acting or or school or it's I, I wouldn't even say it's of its time period, which mm -hmm. a lot of the reviews that I'm reading are like the uh, quintessential under unsung seventies crime New Hollywood drama. movie. Uh, yeah. Can we see some influence from, you know, the, the works of Elaine May's contemporaries? Probably, but it's it's such a singular, undefinable film. Um, I, I think you see that, too, in their relationship. They're not quite friends. They're not quite at odds with one another. There's a weird, I don't know, nebulous quality to their uh, relationship. Well, I would say they at, at some points they are friends. At some points they are the best, the closest people. And sometimes they're sworn enemies. Sometimes they seem like complete strangers to each other. And that I can't, I can't say that one of those is is overall. In fact, I can't speak about this movie in a way that would summarize it. I can, the only way you could talk about it is if you used terms that suggested that the, that it's always changing. You, you I. To talk about J John Cassavetes, I would have to just talk about like, uh, I don't know, his his past or something because you can't um, you can't say that any one thing is going to really define how he operates in this. It's there are a lot of movies that are about kind of one one crazy night or one like dark night of the soul. Um, a they're often much more kind of propulsive and um, mm. energetic than this movie is. But I don't think that any of them capture quite as well as this movie does the feeling of being up all night. Um, oh, my God. Contradicting yourself, conversations that go nowhere, fights that come out of nowhere. Like, I don't know. If you've ever really been on a bender that finds you up all night, your, your conversations with... Uh, your conversations probably get to start sounding like these oh ones, you know? Oh, my God. Well, yeah, working in a bar, you understand exactly how things at a certain point in life no longer make sense mm -hmm. like i see and this is a dark part of my job is seeing a couple that has obviously made the bar that i work at a date night they come in and they get into a bizarre argument bizarre in the sense that they're not arguing about anything they are just doing the act of arguing mm -hmm. and what they're fighting about does not have any subject matter Mm -hmm. And that it's just aggression towards mm -hmm. each other. That is, that is, that, this movie gets at that at some parts when they're just f fighting uh, for fighting's sake, it seems, because I guess they bumped into each other or something. 
it's not hard to believe that this guy would have done something that would make his bosses want to have him killed. You know, he, he seems like someone who is incapable of getting out of his own way, incapable of, of not starting shit uh, mm-hmm. to employ a double negative there. That's a good way of saying, of, of defining his character because that, that quality of his, of it being incapable of chilling out and uh, always being the active participant in like the events of this movie make him a character that's able to engage basically every aspect of of each scene so there's no being on the bus it's being on the bus smoking on the bus Mm -hmm. getting in a fight with the bus driver and and talking about your dick to the lady behind you so that there's no wasted environment in this movie and Mm -hmm. the entire city from its movie theaters to its cemeteries to the people driving around in the street are all being like engaged to the full force to the point where they have to like that lady on the bus that he says like, Oh, you want to see my element? She's like, you're out of your element. And he's like, Oh wait, my, are you sure my elements right here? Something like that. And like, she then is forced by John's character to be characterized and, and have to, uh, have to respond in this heightened way that like gives her the kind of, the the peak humanity that she can kind of act out in the shortest amount of time. Elaine May uses uh, John Cassavetes' character to like evince uh, a strong acting or emotional reaction from like everybody he encounters. Yeah, I I think most uh, most uproariously is in that bar when uh he's <laughs> he's trying to buy a drink for uh a woman who is uh are there with another guy and this mm-hmm. guy is uh is none too pleased and he comes over and he's like hey hey what's your uh is 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 about to start a fight with John Cassavetes and Cassavetes is just immediately like shit talking him like oh what's your yeah. name mel oh my name's mel what's your last name such a good bit they think they're cops so they they manage to get out unscathed <laughs> but peter fogg at this point he is gotta be one of the best flustered actors just him like continually losing his patience the beginning when he's trying to feed him the antacid oh we should also mention that nikki is also maybe like dying from this like stomach ulcer that's like perforated which which is a horrifying thought Uh uh-huh uh and i think that that's peter falk i think john cassavetes operates at that level to give peter falk the the actual guy like a stomach ulcer Mm -hmm. because supposedly on the very slim trivia that's available for this movie peter falk when he realized ned Beatty is not warren Beatty's brother he broke out in hives and production had to stop for the day because he was so embarrassed (laughs) so because i guess he had been operating under the assumption that they were brothers and had probably talked to him about it um, so I think Peter Falk is always trying to quell the, uh, the energy that is John Cassavetes. Um, to go back to the bar where they're the only white people, he, John Cassavetes incites basically a fight with this guy, but, and what you expect to happen is they're in a bar. This is an action movie where shit is going to happen and he's inciting a fight okay, it's going to be a bar fight where everybody there is going to fight him because the people at the bar are potentially friends and they're coming in and ruining everyone's time. But what happens is the guy he incites it with is trying to be nice to him and is like, listen, I'm trying to give you a chance, man, to like chill out and get out of here. And then people kind of hold him back and people are holding 
Nikki back and another guy comes in and is kind of like, like, please, like, we're we're not trying to start anything because, like, they don't want to get into a position where they're all beating up a white guy because of the implications that holds, especially for that time in Philadelphia. Um, and so it's not even a fight. It's like a something that avoids falling into the bar fight movie definition. Like, mm-hmm. each character is kind of characterized, and there's a bunch of different people that are all reacting uh, in a way to... I don't know, engage with this action that's going on. And I don't know how you direct something like that where you get, you direct a bar fight that doesn't actually turn into anything or everyone just kind of backs off, but they're still so close together. And there are a couple fights in the movie that I think are appropriately pathetic. They're appropriately (laughs) not the sort of fights you're used to seeing in movies, these sort of knockdown drag out brawls. They both happen in kind of like really close quarters. There's in the beginning, Peter Falk is trying to get cream in half and half. This, this, you can't order that is always a bit that makes me laugh. Obviously, most famously (laughs) realized when, when Jack Nicholson wants a goddamn chicken salad sandwich or whatever it is, when he's trying to order just like a side, that was a great Jack Nicholson impression, by the way, Uh, when he's, when he's trying to just, order like cream and half and half and the guy's like uh no i can't just give you the half and half and he goes behind the bar and beats the shit out of him uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and then there's cassavetes does that as well with the bus driver which is a spectacular scene falk just having they, to talk both of them down <laughs> yeah talk both of them down and then they just very weirdly evade that situation through like wordplay that i don't understand and it's all literally just about Cassavetes insisting that he be able to get off the bus through the front door. <laughs> right. And you know that probably is what happens in his life. Him just being such a drunk dickhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think this movie begs being called like a, a twist on the old gangster flick or, uh, you know, a uh screwball action and people probably immediately well i don't even know if it got enough attention but people are to this day i'd like to talk about the essay that was written for the criterion release of this just kind of puts it into this box of it's a lane may giving us a different angle on a 70s hollywood gritty bullshit do you want to do you want to turn to that to that essay uh, I just pulled it up right now. Yeah, I had actually started reading it before you called me. It's uh, it's by Nathan Rabin. I I'd like to kind of go because I think he misses us. He does kind of the uh, a classic, I think, film critic type thing where he talks too much and and says nothing at all. One of my specialties. <laughs> on this, just to comment on this, suppose did I think you might have told me this, or maybe Brett said this. Uh, Mikey and Nikki is a joke about Mike Nichols' name. It has to be, right? It can't just be a, be a weird coincidence, right? I honestly didn't know that Elaine May was so like attached at the hip with Mike Nichols. Um, I'm learning that now to see and seeing the lengths to which she's willing to go to fucking make a joke at his expense. Yeah, I was I was um, interested to learn that um, Heartbreak Kid was very much like consciously a response to the graduate. Some interesting stuff there. Insane. It's too much to talk about now, but uh, bizarre. I, I agree with this point here. The the artfulness of May's direction, meanwhile, lies in its relative invisibility. Like Cassavetes, she's more invested in capturing the underlying emotional reality of a scene than in flashy camera movement or ostentatious visual style. 
Uh, it's not that like bold an observation or anything, but I, I think it is true. I think uh, as great a director as she is, she's like the exact opposite of your your. Let's do this in one crazy take. Let's fucking right, right, let's right. let's th- let's have this film exist as a monument to my genius. You know. Okay, I'm gonna link this uh, this cartoon. It's a Nathan Rabin, Mikey and Nikki, difficult men is the name of the article, and I'll link it. I don't think he's wrong in anything that he says. Basically, it's like. He kind of focuses on this being kind of a portrayal of masculinity. It's uh, it's casting aside cliche and convention to express something profound and real about the human condition. He's speaking in this way throughout where it's like, uh, it shows us the complexity of uh, human human life and emotion, which, yes, of course, but he also doesn't say exactly how that's happening. And to to say that this movie points out the complexity of human emotion actually does it a disservice by saying it as if it's one thing that it's doing because it's kind of not. Uh, I would say it's talking specifically about Mikey and Nikki and the people that are in their lives and getting really interesting performances from the people around them. I wouldn't say it's necessarily saying things about that actually happen in our real world, but Elaine May is showing us, a, a giving us a form of presentation and a, and a using a new form of telling us something or showing us things that makes us unable to make a platitude and unable to even watch this in a way that makes us settle at all at during any point to say, oh, and he's going to die at the end. This Nathan Rabin mistakenly assumes at one point, uh, like, this is a movie where we know what's, we know that, you know, it's going to end sadly. I couldn't say that during this I had any idea how it was going to end or, if it was going to end, if, <laughs> I'm honestly surprised that it end with, ended with him getting shot up. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I mean, uh, it's it's a break from convention in that most fundamental sense and that we're used to uh, seeing our characters win. We're used to seeing our characters at the very least survive. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you that it's not as if I don't think she's trying to make some grand statement about the nature of friendship or... The, the the impulses that lead men into like lives of crime or anything like that. I think it's, I don't know. I think it's really a character study and an opportunity to uh, have two great actors do do great work and uh, mm-hmm. explore characters rather than just big like capital I ideas. You know. Uh huh. Also, give these people Peter Falk and John Cassavetes who are so personally informed. They they have so much trust in their in their own ability. Like. Something about them going on the Dick Cavett show and doing that weird physical comedy like o- that is only f- kind of funny to them mm-hmm. and falling all over the place. It's like they're not doing anything that they think is going to be a hit with the people in the audience. And it is, but only because it seems like they're doing something that is really interesting only to them. Uh-huh. Seeing John Cassavetes be really sick and then a second later screaming and then a second later shaving his face with mu- with shaving cream all over his mouth it doesn't point to any part of life that i've seen that like fits into something that i would even think is like funny because it's so unique to like a single person i can't attach it to anything i've seen i guess out in public mm-hmm. uh, i'd like to to point out some specific examples from this article maybe we could talk about like why what 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 we think of that um 
In many ways, Mikey and Nikki fits perfectly into the uncompromising milieu of the new Hollywood of the late 60s and 70s with its unrelenting darkness, moral ambiguity, and focus on troubled, unlikable dwellers on the grubby fringes of American society. It is unique, however, in being a major new Hollywood film directed and written by a woman. Unbelievably, May was only the third woman to direct a Hollywood film in the sound era. It's even more unusual in that it's the farthest thing from what Hollywood would consider a woman women's movie, then or now. It's as insightful about masculinity as Cassavetti's own dramas about the often ugly world of men. How do you feel about that, Bennett? I... I... I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that masculinity was the or even a primary theme of of, of Cassavetti's work. I think Husbands mm. is certainly a movie that has a lot in common with Mikey and Nikki, both in its uh, utterly abhorrent, boorish characters and its its kind of one crazy night structure. Um, but I, what other what other dramas is he referring to that are really like at their core explorations of of masculinity in particular? <laughs> right, I, I, I find. Uh-huh. I, I find his films. What's what's great about them is, is that so many of them have great roles for the the, the men and women in them. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he. I can't think of any Cassavetti film that we saw that's uh, solely focused on a, a male perspective, other than again husbands. But again, I think right. that I don't. I think that has as much to say about like the institution of marriage uh, and about like grief as it does about masculinity. Mm. I think, yeah, Cassavetes points to a way that men can be and are and that women can be and are, but I I don't know why that's defined as masculine. Um, w- maybe because there's more men? I, I just, I, I also just, and, I, and maybe he's not saying this, I don't, I, I don't think that, had you asked Cassavetes, and I think very obviously, right, he has that quote where he says, yeah, the only thing I'm concerned about is love. Like, I don't know, Cassavetes... It, it seems to be suggesting that, that that Cassavetes sees himself as someone who's who's all about probing masculinity. When I think in reality mm. he was someone who was concerned with relationships of every sort and was concerned with emotion. And again, like his characters, what's so wonderful about them is that they aren't types. They're not just capital M men. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Mikey and Nikki, char- like 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 Elaine May's characters, most specifically Mikey and Nikki, they're as individual as as can be. And it's I don't know, it's it's a little reductive to right. I don't know think about how they uh, seem to be the embodiment of some sort of thematic exploration. It's also interesting the way that Elaine May, before getting taken up on her work, is taken up as a woman. It is it is appalling that she's the third woman to direct a Hollywood film in the sound era. That's, that's really striking. But she's also just Oh, uh, a genius! Like uh-huh. she, she's also just the best. Yeah. He, by by saying this is the furthest thing from what Hollywood would consider a woman's movie, I don't know if he's saying that this is the furthest thing from what he would consider a women's movie. I don't know what a women's movie is. I don't know what a masculine movie is. Um, and I think to apply those terms, which are very timely, is to put Elaine May in this box that mm-hmm. at every single event and turn and shift of this movie she evades and that to 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 even review this in a way that that you would review a different movie to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down or even say it illuminates the gritty cinematic territory of a uh, city life is to completely avoid the idea that you're fucking she is kicking down your door like a SWAT team 
and taking basically any movie you've seen before and forcing you to watch this in a in a way that is does not work it and and he he finishes this article by saying may set out to use her genius and the overlapping brilliance of Cassavetes and Falk to articulate brutal profound truths about the joy horror and complexities of human experience as illuminated by the strange codes of a certain subset of insecure, violently overcompensating, crime-prone American men and a tortured conception of friendship as a messy combination of hatred, love, and everything in between. She succeeded spectacularly, and it's an essential reminder that great, deeply personal art endures long after commercial considerations have been rightly consigned to history. Basically closes the book on this by saying, oh, uh, it covers the themes of being a guy of the human experience uh, and how it's joyous and horrible and uh, it's brutal and profound, but doesn't really say anything about what it does to us, which is forces us into a way where people are not defined by by their actions because their actions are always changing. And by putting us in this way of of watching we no longer have any of the tools that we bring through life to say that's that type of person this is that type of person that's a man that's a woman uh they're in love there are no relationships that aren't characterized by a million things in this movie Mm -hmm. evidenced by the way that husbands and wives treat each other when john cassavetes goes home to his wife he's like i love you uh, I, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to die. And she's like, get the fuck out of my house. I don't care if you die. You shouldn't have gotten into this bullshit. And two seconds later, they're embracing each other, kissing. She's like, I don't want you to die. And he's like, listen, baby, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be okay. Like reassuring her after a second ago, he's crying to her that, uh, that, uh, I, I, I how do you how do you write that? How do you conceive of that? It, it's not of the world of movies that we've seen anywhere. It's not a, it's not an Elaine May movie from what we've seen before. It's not a Mike Nichols movie. It's not even a John Cassavetes movie. I, I feel like even John Cassavetes movies have slightly less leeway. Like they're more characterized than they are in this movie because no matter what happens, no matter what event happens. It is getting sh- pu- pushed in another direction. They try to go to the movie theater. John Cassavetes does everything to make them not go to the movie theater. Imagine writing a script where you're in a bar and you're like, okay, we have to get them to a cemetery. And then you say, okay, but then they're going to go to the movie theater. And John Cassavetes is going to be like, no, stop the bus. We're not going to the movie theater. It's like, why Why would you write that if you have to get these people to the cemetery? Why are you making it so impossible? It's, 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 it goes against every screenwriting convention against any any uh wise decision making that a director might make uh to like you know and these characters have to get here by a certain point she allows every single uh event to like have its own life and feel like it's just going to fly in another direction okay i i know i'm fucking going off the rails here i'm not letting you talk the movie does not present itself with like a logical beginning or end so by taking away the narrative us as an audience are forced to succumb to like Elaine May's decision. And so we have to watch the actors in their world instead of predict what's going to happen, instead of anticipating things. Because even when the things happen, it's not even as exciting as when they're just kind of fighting. Experience is defined in this not by where we are, but how everyone is reacting to the unpredictable world. And so there's no planning we can have going into a situation like peter falk can't go into this saying i'm gonna get john cassavetes killed because he it shows that like life is so 
uh, torn and unpredictable that you can't even go into a conversation with, uh, like, we can't go into job interviews with the expectation that uh, I'm going to say this and this and this, because as soon as you go into that situation, we both know everything changes. Everything just gets, based on context, based on what people doing are doing, from the moment you enter into like the flow of conversation of life, there is there are no tools you can bring into it except your moment to moment reaction to what's happening. And instead of going into life with an expectation or going into this movie with an expectation, we can actually only react as the characters do to the shifts and the turns and the fights and relationships that life or this movie unexpectedly leads us into. Um, this movie is just a long, shifting, whirling, jagged, and unending event. There are no moments that you can separate. There are char- You can't separate characters. You just have basically this kind of uh, vague conception of who people are afterwards. Um, yeah, one thing, one thing, I mean, I, I would echo Jonathan Rosenbaum in suggesting that Elaine May is like genuinely like a dangerous filmmaker, um, in the same class as your Orson Welles, your, your Jerry Lewis is people who are genuinely completely unconcerned with doing anything the way it's been done before. Um, I think Nathan Rabin gets into the same dangerous territory that a lot of like identity politics conversations get into. And yes, I know Mm -hmm. this is really easy for a white man to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but he 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 gets t- into pretty reductive territory because at the end of the day, Elaine May is not first and foremost a female filmmaker. She's first and foremost a genius filmmaker, and yeah. I, I, I and it's it's a necessary part of her biography that she was a pioneer um, and that she was treated just fucking atrociously by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think we lose the thread a little bit in focusing primarily on that. Um, I also one thing that worries me about Elaine May is that she's gonna end up going this sort of Werner Herzog, Agnes Varda route of being like memed to death. Mm. Uh, I uh, God, hopefully not literally. I Will Sloan had a tweet the other day uh, about like, you know, some people like filmmakers like um, Werner Herzog and Agnes Varda who who've aged into you know safe memeable territory. I prefer auteurs like Jean Luc Godard and Woody Allen who. Who've refused such <laughs> bullshit? Um, oh. And I don't know. I I, I just like I have a bad feeling we'll be seeing like T-shirts that say like Elaine May is a badass someday or something like that. You know. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I can see you're getting I, like the RBG treatment, and not just because she's uh, a Jewish woman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I I I think she avoids that by just being okay. Let's compare her to uh, who's the guy that made The Shining? Uh, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> To Stanley Kubrick. Let's say Stanley Kubrick, does, his movies are very deeply personal and unique to him. Those movies are identifiable. They're, you, could, you could meme them. You could meme The Shining. That's what they did with that fucking Room 2, Jill of uh, Fuck that movie, by the way. Whatever. Like, Makes me hate movies. Yeah. It, Stanley Kubrick, you can look at his movies and you say, oh, there's like a trajectory. Um, the, his personality is in that. And uh, that's that's why you could point out his like he's a, he's a he's a recognizable auteur for that reason. Elaine May is an auteur for a different reason in that she's doing things that are obviously very personal to her, but the film style reflect what may I think closer to what personality actually is, which is this thing that doesn't. Uh, it's a more interesting thing, a thing that doesn't get settled. Where and and 
Uh, Dwight McDonald says something interesting about Norman Mailer in the same way. He never did the same book twice because he's not interested in having a voice like that. The, mm-hmm. His voice is more unique because it is constantly changing. I think that's more reflective of like what, I don't know, going through life and what personality actually is. I think what makes Elaine May a dangerous filmmaker is that she's saying different things all the time and making us maybe reconsider that we have any personality to speak of that we can rest on for for a minute. I mean, to even write about a movie like this is is you know, having to reckon with the fact that like, oh, uh, anything I say is just going to be like a fixed piece of writing about this shit that is just a fucking out of this world. Like you can't even the script, you could read the script, but it wouldn't it doesn't, you know, she's she's utilized what fucking filmmaking is. It's like a billion pictures that all mean a different fucking thing at every moment. I, 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 I don't know how else to say it, but like she just fucking blew the fucking top off this shit of making movies like it's like fucking starting at the beginning again i can't wait to watch ishtar which was dismissed in its time as one of the worst movies ever made if not the worst <laughs> movie ever made so um yeah i she, she fucking rules and it's cool that she also seems to really hate the spotlight um there are all sorts of like anecdotes from like earlier in her career where she would like she apparently said to someone who was interviewing her uh is it possible that you could not use my name anywhere in the, in the article? Uh, she apparently like wrote would write like interviews of her herself so so as to avoid having to like have the conversations. Oh my god! Wow. Um, so I yeah, I mean I I like that she's never she's not cheapened her brand in any way by letting herself become a meme mm. either. I mean mm-hmm. I guess she's really only kind of recently become like a fashionable figure to talk about. But I mean I could be wrong. What the fuck do I know? But so um, <clears throat> did Ishtar come out after this? Ishtar is I think like eighty five. Yeah. So is Ishtar like? Is it like a comedy? I've uh, seen parts of it, and it just seems pretty polished. <laughs> I've I've watched the first twenty minutes like five times, and I've like every time let my rental run out after forty eight hours by forgetting that I'd rented it. Um, it's about Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are two um, like lounge musicians uh, struggling. It's sort of a parody of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby road trip movies. They end up going to like the Middle East and getting involved in some sort of um, like political fiasco. Charles Grodin's in it. Uh, which I'm very excited wow. about. Can't yeah. wait. Um, it might also be the first PG-13 movie with nudity that we've seen since Splash, which I think <laughs> is actually PG. Actually, they both probably were. I, I to, 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 from what I've seen of it, it just seems completely different from whatever Mikey and Nikki is, and I, I think she provides a very strong example of how to live some live a life where you do. You are continually in a new place, putting yourself in an uncomfortable position. Um, I I can't wait to watch this, and I am kind of fucking freaked out by how she's able to do this over and over again. Mm-hmm. I, I have to go back and watch the last two because I don't think I was watching <laughs> closely enough, kind of treating them... I think even watching them side by side with Mike Nichols is a little bit of a disservice to her, mm-hmm. um, even though that's probably how she would want you to watch them. Uh, I think Mike Nichols, it, she makes Mike Nichols seem like the fucking safest Steven Spielberg ass director. The fucking hack, right? <laughs> <laughs> the graduates, this like revolutionary film and Mikey and Nikki, Mikey and Nikki genuinely makes it look like... <laughs> 
fucking garbage. <laughs> fucking child's play. Just fucking yeah. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> 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 fucking hackery. Fucking pabulum. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh. I mean, this there's there's like ten different just fucking heartbreaking scenes in this movie. Their whole conversation oh in the graveyard. Uh, uh, Falk talking about how nothing happens after you die, Nikki. It's just you know, like lights going out. And I like that he like gives up the game there too. Basically, he says something like, "Well, I'm not dying, so I don't have to worry about it." Uh, as if to say, yeah. Yeah, "You are, you um, are." Yeah. I like that. Oh, and they're and they're Jewish mobsters. I like that Elaine May recognized in both <laughs> of their personalities uh, that they could easily pass as as Jews on screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. There are some really like fucking bizarrely funny moments in this movie, like uh, the you you said right before we started. They're talking about where to find the hitman is is writing down on a map where to find these two guys. And it's like this fucking wrinkly ass map, huge, the size of a twin this... fucking bed. He pulls it and it goes across the whole <laughs> bed in his hotel room. Like scratching all over like super tiny handwriting like he's gonna stop he's for directions go. yeah and all the while he's supposed to be this like kind of like sleuthing hitman character i guess and he's watching an action movie that has like action movie music playing in that and so like instead of just playing action movie music elaine may has him the hitman like being the guy that wants to watch an action movie and mm-hmm. it's you know, getting the movie from that fucking shitty hotel, getting the music from that shitty hotel TV and a- instead of actually being like, and this is an action movie. And also she does a funny thing where <laughs> he goes to the movie theater and the movie that's playing is this like super heightened karate action uh-huh. movie, which is just so not the world of this movie. We see a guy like back spin kicking these people. And this is immediately after we see Mikey and Nikki rolling around on the ground, having like the most fucking pathetic fight in all uh-huh. of movie history. Like fucking uh, like Don and Duck Phillips' fight in uh, the suitcase. <laughs> Just two drunken dipshits. <laughs> um, I like to he's carrying around a, brand, a brown bag, obviously containing a gun, just in every building he goes into. Like, why don't you leave it in the car? Why don't you stick it in the waistband right. of your pants or something? Uh-huh. I, like waiting around. They go to that bar. They, they First, before they go to the movie theater or the cemetery, they go to that bar, and I like that Cassavetes is still drinking milk at the bar. Ugh. <sighs> <sighs> Um, oh my god yeah i uh, what what's your take on pouring beer out into a glass is that something you would do i feel if i'm uh, drinking like a schmitz why am i what, what am i like aerating <laughs> this am i decanting this fucking pbr <laughs> <laughs> i like drinking out of a tiny glass like they do for some reason that seems like a thing they did in the 70s is like mm-hmm. t- the tiniest glass available mm-hmm. you pour your beer into um but I do that because I I personally am very acquainted with the idea that uh, those beer cans are going through fucking hell and high water before they reach your lips. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, like what? Whereas the uh, the the glass has probably been cleaned recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you're right. For someone like me who, who's pretty anal about like the, the the cleanliness of like surfaces and whether or not I'm going to get like an infection from them, I, uh-huh. I guess I do just want to like put my mouth on whatever uh, right. bottle, cup, yeah. can. Don't wise. you? Don't- don't you love when you realize like oh shit my belt is probably covered in piss and shit now i have mm-hmm. to now now i again got to readjust my entire life because Ugh. of this fucking bizarre sanitation I've, i i <laughs> think about shit like that all the time if you've ever flushed a urinal in your urinal in your life by the way with your hands you are such a fucking You're sucker joker. like what is gravity <laughs> for i'm sorry 
Honestly, Ugh. okay, I've gotten to the point where I think washing your hands is a mistake. You have to just um, not touch anything. Just pull your pants down and use your waistband as the guide, and then out, out the door. Mm-hmm. Don't touch anything. Yeah, I wish I, I, I wish like no, I, I wish belts weren't a thing because yeah, I've thought about that a lot. How disgusting belts probably are. Oh, and like shoelaces is another obvious mm-hmm. one. I mean, they're literally getting dragged around through the muck. Ugh. Yeah, I think I'm getting back to a place where I'm, I, I'm embracing the probiotic benefit of potentially just gathering up a bunch of shit, piss, and you know, muck from the public. <laughs> Uh, I do think that my, I think my, um, my, my immune system, uh, you've scoffed at this idea before, but I think one of the reasons I very rarely get sick, like seriously <laughs> sick, is because I'm constantly biting my nails and like chewing on my hands. I know I just said I was obsessed with certain types of cleanliness, but when it uh-huh. comes to just putting my fucking hands in my mouth, I can't stop it. I'm like, uh, I'm like John Cassavetes <laughs> and husband, just go, ah, <laughs> <laughs> when he's sucking yeah. on his fingers. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, Ned Beatty is so sweaty in this movie too. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a there's a moment where they're on the bus and they're just kind of looking at each other and it seems like Mikey and Nikki that is and uh, Peter Falk Mikey is like looking at John Cassavetes hands. He's like, you got you got big hands. You could have been a piano player with those could've, hands. Could have been a piano player doing this fucking weird thing. It's like he's reminiscing or he's like playing the friend now. It's like. You're here to get this guy killed. Like, mm-hmm. what happened that's making you fucking chill and reminisce? And and how do you think of that as like a script moment? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one of the things that's wonderful about rewatching the movie is assessing like um, whether or not you think Falk is having second thoughts, and right. at what point you think Cassavetes is in on it. I think he's in mm-hmm. on it as soon, probably earlier. He's definitely. He's most definitely in on it by the time Falk says he has to call his wife uh, before mm. they leave the bar. Right. Um, I guess it's sort of like if there's a single other shoe dropping uh, moment. Um, yeah, I, I take that too to be him at this like last possible moment, like thinking even in however abstract terms about all the way, ways their lives could have and probably ought to have been different. Um, when he starts, Cassavetes has some line like, you know, Man, things that happened when we were kids, no one knows about that. It's such a it's such a line that's pregnant with so much meaning, you know. Like, who, what does he mean by that? You know, mm. um, what, what what are the what are the formative moments of their relationship together? You know, we don't know. We 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 were left to just sort of like pick up, it, kind of kind of piece that together from from the way they interact with one another and uh, yeah, the way yeah. they start and end fights quickly. Um, Falk starts talking about his brother. <clears throat> There's a way in which the things. The the things they mention in passing refer to this whole past that we're not allowed to kind of think about, which I think is really uh, brought out in the scene where he smashes his watch. Mm. And like, you know, this movie rarely settles into a single emotional beat, but I just felt so sad for Peter Falk at that mm-hmm. time. He's like, John Cassavetes throws this, like, he's like, oh, is this your watch? Throws it on the ground and breaks it. And it's just, and Peter's like, actually just like, dude, my dad gave me that. that my dad gave me that watch like mm-hmm. that's the only thing i have for my dad like he's picking up the pieces from the ground and it's just like fuck i don't know anything about you but like you just said like four things that are making me f- so fucking sad right now every yeah every domestic scene we get is full of um just really kind of like subtly um heartbreaking lines they there's mm-hmm. when they go to uh this woman that i guess she's like his mistress john cassavetes like mistress they go to her house uh so cassavetes kind of sex with her under the uh mm-hmm. and folk thinks they're going to like a brothel 
Um, yeah. That scene is full of just so many little like Holy cutting lines. Falks yeah. like trying to feign like interest. Oh, so you like the news? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. That whole I mean, scene, ooh, where he's in the kitchen while they're fucking. Oh, Molly. And then, oh my god! And then Peter Falk and she get into like an get into a fight because he thinks she's a call girl and she's not. It's John's girlfriend. And like, okay, that's a moment where. I, if we're comparing it to Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols could never have a scene that we don't go into it knowing everybody's role in this. Where, like, in, in The Graduate, we know... W- what makes it complex is that we know everybody's role in this kind of three-way relationship. Like, the mother is the mother, and the, he's... Uh, and he's fucking both the daughter and the mom and what makes it complex is that they all know about it and they all realize it at the same time and we as a we as the audience know what's going on beforehand but in this it's reversed in that we find out about the relationships as they're happening and certain people find it out at different times and we don't realize the role that one person's playing until a little bit later and there's no there's not even like an aha moment in that it's just like we're given stuff, we're given things so rapid fire that we just like end up having an understanding that like just keeps kind of fucking breaking your heart. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's one of those scenes where you wish she would have pulled like a Scorsese and like had the camera like look away in shame because it's just truly like, whoa. Um, <laughs> honestly, um, I we then we later have like you mentioned the scene where, um, uh, Cassavetes tries to go to his wife who we find out uh, early on in the film has left him to go see like his kid one last time before he gets a fucking bullet in the head and the kid's like yeah. not responding to him um, we got uh, Falk going to like the gangsters and like kind of uh, trying to figure out whether they think he's like a big joke that's a great scene too that almost made me cry when we find out like kind of where it all went wrong for them potentially Falk saying you know you say you're my friend and you make fun of me behind my back there's some crack uh, they were like at a restaurant together or something and Falk walked by or Cassavetes was eating at the restaurant with the mobsters and I think Falk was also there and Cassavetes made some crack like hey don't forget to give me your drink order uh, you know mm. like he's some nobody um, yeah. and Falk I, Falk just does such a good job of showing you without going too over the top, without like bawling his eyes out. I don't know. Like it's it's clear he has such like a facade he wants to keep up of being like a tough guy, and without without like fully betraying that, he he portrays just how like wounded he really is about all of that. I think so well. Yeah, uh, he's got such a he plays like just sad uh, so well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe because he doesn't, I, 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 he doesn't reveal that until it's like John Cassidy's prods him so fucking hard and then it just you get some you just get some ideas of like what what their relationship previously might have been which is like oh we're in a situation now that Nikki is is only with Mikey because he's in a fucking super dangerous situation and before it's not it's not always like that and it's like oh shit this is more painful because (laughs) this might be the only time that Mikey is getting like you know treated like an equal or like a friend mm-hmm. or like someone that needs to be around i like and maybe i'm wrong about this i don't think we ever find out when the last time they saw each other was like for all we know this is the first time he's seen nikki and for fucking ever you know um yeah uh, I, I like that that adds another kind of question to to their history with one another um and then the final sequences which see Falk kind of finally return home to his wife who has been waiting up this whole time. She has one of the few like funny lines in the movie when she's trying to get the um 
she's trying to get the address for where they're going to be. And mm-hmm. um, she has like nothing to write with. And um, maybe this wasn't so funny. Maybe I just thought this was funny. I thought it was funny <laughs> that she asked for a crayon to write with. I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was your first thought. Um, <laughs> well, it's like she has to talk to her son. It's not like, get me a pen because he's not going to know where the fucking pens are. It's like, get me a crayon because he's, she's like, yeah, Crayola, crayon. It's, like, a, it's just okay. a funny idea to think of like writing down the address where your husband's going to help get his get best friend murdered. <laughs> <laughs> writing that with a crayon that you're borrowing from your kid is just sort of a funny incongruous idea to me. He goes, he goes home to his wife who by the way has not only been up this whole time um her hair is still like perfect perfectly like made up i thought that was very unusual she looks like she's got hair like uh like jimmy neutron's mom uh the sort of uh i don't know what you call that <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> um and at this point it's 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 at this point it's like the light of day which i think is is great too like it's just finally like all right like no more hiding you know like we yeah. gotta we gotta fucking face face the music here have you read you read mm-hmm. dubliners right the the joyce short stories no i never finished it uh there's a really maybe you read you read did you read the day of the race it's an early one about this guy who who just kind of falls in with this crowd of like really like hard drinking people and is just like out all night and then just the ending is just them like opening the door and realizing oh fuck it's the morning. <laughs> uh, it just reminded me a lot of that. Just the fact that, like, well, it's really, it's really over for Cassavetes, and he must just be like, oh, great, you know, like the sun's up. Uh, oh this my guy's god, seeing the light of day, it's like, oh god, this is not this movie. God, this is fucking, this is not good. It's very jarring, yeah, because it comes out yeah. of nowhere. Like you don't, you don't really notice. At least I didn't notice the sun like gradually rising. Oh my god, it's just yeah, kind of all and of like, a sudden, it's like being fucking up all night on coke and just oh fuck the sun is up i uh, feel like complete shit tomorrow is going to be a fucking nightmare i'm never going to fall asleep right it, it, this movie really does feel like being up all night i mean you have the 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 like the the dry eye feeling you know mm. the, mm-hmm. the practically <laughs> I practically had vocal fry after watching this movie, let me tell you. Um, and Falk <laughs> yeah. is so, so wonderful in his scenes, uh, in these in these bits with his wife. Um, he's, he's again, like, really just so clearly wounded from everything Cassavetes has said to him. He's asking her, like, again and again, like, do, do I repeat myself when I talk? Do you think I'm, do you think I'm like, annoying? Do you think I'm a joke? Mm, uh, did I ever mm-hmm. tell you about my brother Izzy? Uh, and then he tells this long story about when his brother died and his father started crying. Ugh. Mm. Mm, mm-hmm. again it's not a big this wouldn't be someone's like oscar scene it's not a big like emotional blowout but it's so fucking sad yeah because you don't i mean you just see them living in and it because it doesn't make a point out of it it's like oh this is something maybe they don't get to talk about until they realize like their lives are fucking ending mm-hmm. and then I, I the first time i watched it uh, the very ending, which is Ned Beatty has been circling the block, I guess, for hours, waiting for them to get to his house. Cassavetes is pounding on Falk's door. Falk is begging his wife to leave the room, pushing chairs in front of the door as Falk is like, as, as Cassavetes is outside screaming, like pleading for his life. And mm-hmm. uh, Beatty shoots him in the chest pretty, pretty violently, too. You see like a big like spray of like blood, which I was not expecting. Um, again, for a movie that mm-hmm. tends to operate on like the outskirts of its uh, mob violence um Mm -hmm. just uh just a really fucking devastating ending um yeah not unlike some of the endings of like cassavetti's films where you're just like god what the fuck happens after this you know how do how do how do falk and his wife just go about like the rest of their day oh my god (laughs) i mean how how do you go about watching other movies after watching 
similar yeah <laughs> mikey and nicky is one of those movies where the experience of watching it is like a, it's 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 narrative is a great metaphor for the experience of watching it you know folk how does he go on after this us god how do we go on after this no idea <laughs> yeah uh it's like let me wake up tomorrow and read the newspaper with the with the uh with the idea that elaine may gave me that um no moment is definable by the fucking language that i paste on top of it and mm-hmm. uh no box can be created to fit any any uh, meaningful understanding of life into, um, and uh, the only way to approach any situation is to be constantly changing. Um, let me read. Let me read news from last night, written by a guy with a huge bias, um, mm. and just see what's going on in the world. Mm. Uh, just just a really wonderful film. I feel like I had nothing like intelligent to say about it. Um... I don't know. If if you haven't seen Mikey and Nicky, folks, uh, buy the Criterion Blu-ray. Yep. Support, buy physical media, guys, because these fucking digital fugazis, they're just going to go away. They don't, they're not forever. I lost every book I ever bought for my Kindle because my Kindle died. Uh, not not saved Christ. in the account, nowhere. So, guys, yeah, like, like 40, 50 books, yeah. Just fucking... Mm. Including, like, one textbook, I might add, which was fucking pricey. So, you know, you really can't win them all. Mikey and Nicky, folks, it's, <laughs> it's one of the best movies ever made. If it's the only movie you ever see, you'd be you'd be in a very good place. And there's nothing you can read in a in a in a film history 101 or fucking Saving the Cat or any of those bullshit fucking <laughs> screenwriting textbooks or any 101, any AFI top 200. None of this is going to be on the IMDb Jonathan fucking Rosenbaum top. Even, the fact that this was even released on on Criterion is a fluke. This is this is this is uh oh, this thing will teach you more about movies and about life than than reading about fucking re- listening to us fucking talk about shit and uh, listening to fucking movie reviewers spin their wheels about uh, the meaning of life. This is the this is the historical artifact. This is the fucking Egyptian writing on the wall that is going to give you the fucking key to like I don't know operating in a way that might reflect the way the the chaotic nature of life mm-hmm. and i've seen some people talk about how compared to her first two comedies which are as we've talked about just so tight and so perfectly calibrated they've talked about this being like a a sloppy movie apparently you can see a boom mic in one shot when they're in uh john's girlfriend's apartment if you noticed mm-hmm. the fucking boom mic when you were watching mikey and nikki particularly if it is during that sequence <laughs> that you're watching movies the wrong way you're watching movies for the wrong yeah. reasons you're the cinema sins guy yeah. Yeah. I'd find another hobby, right? <laughs> it's not for you, folks. Yeah, this ain't it, Chief. <laughs> uh, and also, um, TV sucks. TV um, sucks. Movies mostly suck. Anything that uh, wins an award is bad. Um, <laughs> listen, go try to uh, write something from your heart. Mm. Uh, don't listen. Don't read the news. And don't listen to your parents, and don't mm-hmm. take a writing class. And drop out of college. If drop you're, uh, out of college. Listen to this and in smoke. college. And smoke. It's the only two no, good decisions smoke. I ever made. <laughs> Bennett, you're back on smoking wagon. I've been smoking like it's 2014 lately. Yeah, I'm. I'm probably gonna light up as soon as we're finished recording this podcast. <laughs> You know, the good thing about smoking is if you stand on the front of the train, um, someone might just mistake the smoke plumes from your mouth for the big coal fire that's right next to you. And if you say things like choo-choo, no one's going to tease you. Mm. 
Ugh. Yeah. I yeah, no, I, I desperately need to stop, but what can you do, nah, you know? What what can you do? Mm. I mean, what what are you living for tomorrow? Exactly. No. All right. No, I'm like Mikey and Nikki, baby, just staying up all night, going to the movie theater. I like that he talks about 15 minutes of coming attractions. Like that's the craziest thing in the world. What a different time. <laughs> <laughs> God, the, I would kill for just 15 minutes. God. <laughs> the uh, the uh, talking about the candy at the uh-huh. uh, late night movie theater. Mm-hmm. Nice little nod to uh, people in the movie theater. <laughs> Uh, anyway, what do, where do we go from here, Bennett? I think that's the end of the podcast. Yeah, wow. It's it's interesting. An interesting transition that this podcast has had is that it went from a, a podcast. It went from a podcast where literally every single episode we could confidently say, "No, you're better off listening to us make fun of this movie than you are watching." It's a much more useful way to spend uh-huh. your time, and you'll honestly probably uh-huh. learn more. And now yeah. it's like we've talked about like. I don't know what with like Cassavetti. Although I guess we were talking about Nick Cassavetti's movies in those episodes too. But with like Cassavetti's and Nichols and May, it's like no, you you really should watch these movies uh, instead of hearing me bloviate about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also gone from the point of um, m- me thinking that talking about important movies was just going to be fucking boring to listen to. Now I don't even know what these episodes are like to listen to. Uh, so. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, it, this podcast has gone in a very different direction. I've been. I was thinking about uh, doing Ron Howard, doing fucking John Favreau and Mel Gibson. What was? What happened? <laughs> I don't even remember what happened. Not, not just because I was blacked out for so many of those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, for the record, folks, if you want to go back and listen to the episodes where we are blacked out, Shane is blacked out in the Inferno episode, and I am blacked out for the second half of the Parenthood episode. Uh huh. Yeah. Like uh, like Stephen King writing Cujo. I don't remember a single part of recording any of the Ron Howard stuff besides some of the last ones. Anyway, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, again, watch uh, watch Mikey Nicky. Thank you, Split Tooth Media, for sponsoring. Uh, thank you to our sponsor Smith and Wesson, um, Walther and uh, Nest Camera for um, hosting this episode, and um, God bless you. <laughs>